This is Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode is a practical argument against government. So in the previous episode, or actually the previous one was an update, so the one before that, it was a moral argument against government. So I talked about morality from more of a universal perspective and that is much more subjective than any other form of argument here. And in the update episode, I talked about a biblical moral view. So if you look at it from a Judeo-Christian standard, which is probably the biggest influence on morality in the Western world as of today, um, I looked at what that looks like if you assess government from that perspective. So we've covered all the different avenues of looking at it from a moral view. And now we need to look at it from more of a practical view, something that's a little more objective and something that concentrates on efficiency and effectiveness and incentive models and things like this. So that's what today's episode will cover. It'll cover things like money and funds, profit and loss, uh, distortion of markets and investment, incentive structures, You've got things like democracy and how that works, satisfying everyone's desires or not. And I'll wrap it up with a few contradictions that I feel are blaringly obvious here in what government is trying to prevent. But typically they do the exact same thing they're trying to prevent in order to prevent it. And so that is a direct contradiction that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. How can you stop crime if you are participating in crime? If you're the reason crime exists, then what's the point in your efforts to stop it because you're the ones doing it, that kind of stuff. So we'll talk about that, and some of that is a bit of a circular argument from the government's perspective, and we can call them out on that. So let's start at the beginning and start off with funds, with money. That's, that's a good one to start off with because it is one that is very obvious and has one of the biggest impacts on government as a whole and what they do, what they can do, what they're incentivized to do. And the main issue here is that the government essentially has no limit to funds. They can create as much money as they want within certain parameters, yes, and they are also constrained by things like inflation and things like that. So there are some constraints here, but from a practical point of view, in general, the government has as much money as they want. They can always raise taxes or just print more money or use the Federal Reserve to buy treasury bonds or whatever they want to do. There's lots of different ways that they can make money and well, I shouldn't say make money, that they can create money is probably a more accurate word here. And so obviously this creates a bit of an incentive problem where if you have as much money as you need to satisfy a certain goal, then there's probably going to be a lot of waste because why not? You've got plenty of money. Money is not an issue. It's not a problem. You're not on a set budget. We we call government budgets budgets, but they're never balanced. It is never a balanced budget. And so I guess technically it's a budget, but there actually is no goal of only spending what they make and making what they spend. That is never the goal. It's just a budget that basically just keeps track of the money flows and that's it. It's not something that they're actually trying to stick to or that they ever get evened out, much less make a profit on. At least most countries. There are a few countries that are profitable. There's a handful, and that does exist. But 
the majority of the modern civilized countries in the world are definitely running a deficit. So we've talked about fiat money and what that means and how that works and the fractional reserve banking system. I talked about that two episodes ago, and we've talked about it many times throughout the course of this podcast, so I'm not going to get into that. But just the monetary system in general is mostly what allows this to be an issue. It allows essentially an unlimited number of funds to the government. And what the government does when they create more money is they back it by promises. They don't have any proof of value because there is no value. There's nothing behind it. The only thing behind it, the only thing of value is the government saying this has value and that's it. So I'm not going to get into inflation and everything. We've talked about that again in previous episodes. So that's just how this works. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense because number one, running an organization with no budgetary constraints, at least no practical restraints here, just is not very efficient. It's never going to be efficient. You're lucky if it can even be effective at all. And so that's a big issue here. Number two, there is no competition. So it's not like there is another monetary system that your government is competing against. And any competition that does exist is very highly regulated and essentially controlled by the government. So it's not really competition. It's not that it's a competing organization that's actually actively trying to compete in the markets with you. Well, if you're the one that runs the entire market and makes all the rules and you allow one little player to come in and play a certain role, is that really competition? Well, no, not really. So what competition is there? Well, there's competition among themselves, among different government departments. So some people call America the governmental system with checks and balances. And that's supposed to be this, you know, greatest thing that has ever been invented in all of political theory. But really, if you have a government organization that is judging itself and checking itself and competing against itself, it's still just a giant monopoly. Yes, there are multiple departments, but it's one company. It's one organization. It's one group. So that is not really competition. So overall with this, you've got the issue where there's an unlimited budget. You've got an issue where there is no real competition. And with this, there is no profit and loss standard. That is how a business, an organization, that's how any group can make the best use of their resources is by looking at profits and losses. If something is profitable, then it is worth investing in. It's worth using resources for because you put in a certain amount of resources up front and then you get even more value out of that in the end. And so you're creating value. So that's a good thing. You're making a profit, whether that be in money or materials or goods or whatever, services, it doesn't matter. The point is that you are making a profit. And that's how businesses decide what to do, what decisions to make, what programs to fund, how to allocate resources in general. And if you look on a broader perspective, the market as a whole, even the worldwide market, that's how the markets decide what to do. It's not like there is one organization that says, hey, I'm the market and I'm going to tell all these companies how much of each different item to produce and how much to sell it for and what countries to sell it in and all this stuff that doesn't exist. 
the market is something that isn't ran by anyone. No organization, no group, no person, nothing. There are some regulations that get put into the markets, into market systems, but those vary according to what country or region you're in. And so those aren't universal. There is no universal regulation of the market per se. And so the market finds ways of being extremely efficient and effective. And the main way that happens is through profit and loss. If something is losing value and someone is getting a loss out of a transaction, then they're not going to participate in that transaction. That doesn't make any sense. Whereas if someone is profiting from a transaction, they will probably participate in that. And the only reason usually why they wouldn't is if they can profit even more from a different transaction, which means that they would be doing something that is even more effective and more efficient than they would have otherwise. So again, profit and loss is the best standard to use. But when it comes to government, this does not exist. Government is not designed to be a profitable company. It just doesn't work that way. That's not even how it's designed to try to work. That's never a goal. So with that being the case, not only does it prevent an efficient allocation of resources because you don't know where to allocate resources to because you're not operating on profits and losses and trying to determine this. So you're just arbitrarily trying to choose according to economic experts, maybe. Maybe they know exactly what to do. Well, no, they don't. Markets are going to be more efficient than any group or any person. That's something that historically has been proven to be true. And so with this, it's very hard to judge success. When it comes to a government, it's almost impossible to judge success because if success is not measured in profits, then what the heck is it measured in? The, the public good? Yes, probably. But how do you determine that? Who determines that? I will guarantee you that the definition of the public good and what that looks like from a policy and market perspective is very different according to who you ask. And even if you ask people that are involved in the government, government officials, even they have different opinions on what is best for the public good, on what is best for markets, on what are the most efficient and effective markets. You've got Keynesians, you've got Austrians, you've got neocons, you've got lots of different groups that look at markets and policies and government organization very differently. And so with that, how in the world can you take one of these people or a group of these people and make decisions on exactly how to allocate resources and how to judge whether a program is successful or not if you don't even know what success looks like and you don't even know what profits look like. Or maybe you do, you just don't care about profits. So that's not a factor. It just makes it very hard. It's not very practical. It's not very efficient. And it's not very effective. The incentive structure is all wrong. It, it It's perverse. So what government departments are incentivized to do is to use up their entire budget and not accomplish the goals of their department, which is ridiculous. I think I can speak for most of us when I say that we would like our governments to use as little money as possible and to accomplish the goals that they have set forward for the public good or whatever overarching theme we think they should be doing in society. But we want them to do it effectively, and we want them to do it efficiently. That's what we would all want. And that's what just makes sense. It's common sense. It's practical. And 
that does not exist. So that's that's a pretty big problem. If you have a government department that actually comes in under budget, then usually on the next budget, they get less money. So they are funded less. They might get less people and less resources. And so on one hand, that is an efficient use of resources. So if a department can do their job with less than what they're given, then they shouldn't be given as much. They should be given that lesser amount, and they should be doing their job with the least amount of resources possible so that resources can be used in places that they are more needed. That does make sense. However, when you are operating within government, you don't have the profit and loss system here or incentive model. And so instead of being held to these standards, you as a department can do pretty much whatever you want. Now, what do you want to do? Well, you want to have more money. You want to have more people. You want to have your department be more important. You want to look better to the public. And so in order to do this, you want to have, again, more money. Basically, you want your budget to increase, not decrease. That's what you want if you are a government department. And how do you do that? Well, the only way to do that is to show that you can't satisfy the goals of your department with the funds that you have, with the current budget. And so when the next budget comes out, or sometimes you can get funds before that, you will be given more money so that you will have what you need to accomplish your goals. And need is a very relative term here. So what you're doing is you're basically trying to not accomplish all the goals of your department in order to increase your budget and increase your staff and increase the importance of your department. And that is the incentive model here. It's not like there's actually a CEO or a manager making compensation on how well and efficiently the department runs. There really is no incentive model for making profits and using resources efficiently. The only incentive model is to make sure you get voted into office. However, most government departments are made up probably 99% of people that are not elected. They're just people that are hired to work in the government. Do you actually elect your police officers? Or do you elect the people that work at the central office in your local school district? Or do you elect military generals? No, you don't. And so who are they held accountable to? They are held accountable to whoever's above them. And that goes up the chain and up the chain. And eventually there are people that are elected. But once they get elected, then they're guaranteed their job pretty much for the course of, you know, two years, four years, whatever the term limits are for that job, sometimes life. And they're not really held all that much accountable for what they do and the decisions they make. There's not a lot of accountability here. And so even if you don't have, say, a CEO, you could say maybe a president or a head of state might be like a CEO. But again, it's totally different incentive model here. Their goal is not to create a profitable governmental system. That's not the goal here. Whereas with a company, that's the goal is to make profits. And that makes a lot of sense. And so since a president or a head of state or a government organization is not trying to do that, then you would need something, you would need some system, you would need some incentive mechanism in order to make sure that they are going to use resources efficiently and they are going to accomplish their goals effectively with as little as possible. And so with this, how do you do that? Well, the only way would be to have a profit and loss standard where you can actually judge 
the success of a department or of an operation or program. And you have to be able to judge, number one, whether it's successful or not, whether you're meeting your goals or not. But then number two, you have to judge whether you did that efficiently with the resources you have at your disposal. And that just doesn't really exist in governmental organizations. There are some aspects that are incorporated into some departments of some governments that do look something like this. But as a whole, and we're talking in generalities here, I'm talking about all modern governments from an overview perspective, the incentives just don't line up. This doesn't happen. This is not the way the world works. It's pretty naive to think that your government is actually doing things effectively and efficiently with the resources they are stealing from you and creating out of thin air. That's just not the way it works. I'm sorry. So another practical consideration is what effect this has on the actual markets and on the citizens of a country, on the companies that operate within the world markets as a whole. What happens here when you have giant organizations, governments, that are acting in these ways, operating by these standards and by these incentive models, what effect does that have on the rest of society? Well, overall, it distorts markets. That's the main effect that it has. It has a distortion effect on all markets and prices and resources and everything. Because what happens is that money is taken from potential investments and is put into something that it otherwise would not have been put into. And so the government is taking, let's say, 30% of my income in taxes, and they are spending that on something that I would not have spent it on if I would have had a choice. That money is being spent on something else, whatever the government deems is more important, not what I deem is more important. And again, when we look at markets and how markets work, the most efficient and effective market is one that operates free of constraints so that people operate according to what is profitable and what is not profitable, what meets demand and what does not meet demand. And so with this, instead of me being able to buy something that I want and that I need, some of my money is being stolen from me and spent on things that I do not want and I do not need. Aside from the moral argument here, which is that theft is wrong, we've talked about that. Aside from that, the practical application here is that investments are being made into things by people who are not subject to having to meet demand or wanting to meet demand or being held to profit and loss standards or really much of anything. They're just being decided by basically the bureaucracy. They're deciding how to allocate all their resources. Now, maybe, let's just throw this out there hypothetically. Let's say a corporation gives a million dollars to a campaign for a presidential candidate. That candidate gets elected. That candidate is then allocating resources and funds and grants and creating policies that affect the industry of this company that gave them a million dollars and helped them get elected, do you think there's going to be any impact there? Is there going to be any influence that that company or the million dollars that company gave might have on that particular government official? Hypothetically, I would argue probably so. So you've got a lot of other issues here with incentives and investments and decision making and that kind of stuff. 
But getting back to the investment issue here, let's look at a company. So if Boeing has $1 million to invest into something for R&D or investment for capital goods or whatever the case may be, whatever they want to spend it on, they have this million dollars. They're going to attempt at least to spend it on whatever's going to be most profitable for their company. And that will be according to a certain risk profile and according to certain parameters and their goals and all this kind of stuff. But they're going to want to use those resources efficiently and effectively. That's what they will try to do. So that million dollars will enter the markets in whatever form that may be, whether they buy a factory plant or whether they buy more steel or aluminum to build some of their products or whatever they do with it, they're going to use that money in a way that is efficient and effective for their company. Their company's goal is to meet demand in the marketplace. And if they don't do that, then they're going to lose money and lose market share. And so they're incentivized to provide what the market demands and they will use their resources in order to do so. And so what happens if the government takes a portion of that million dollars. Let's say the government takes 50% of it and all of a sudden they only have 500,000 to put into the markets and to invest in their company. Well, number one, that's going to change probably their investment decisions because they don't have as many funds to work with. So they will have to assess that a little differently. But even so, let's say they spend the $500,000 on whatever is most efficient and effective for their company, and that goes into the markets and allocates resources to something that is profitable, that gains value for the market as a whole, for the economy as a whole. Well, what happens to the other 500000 Well, it goes to pay for military expenses and the public education system and welfare programs and all these things that if Boeing had the choice in how to spend their money, they probably would not be choosing to spend it in these different ways. And so is that money actually going into the markets in places that it is most needed? Are resources being allocated efficiently and effectively? The argument is no, because I don't think that anybody really thinks that governments allocate resources effectively and efficiently. I know that there are plenty of people that believe that they at least do it better than someone else would. And I can understand that argument. I don't think it is completely thought out and followed through, but I at least understand where you're coming from with that. But still, I think we can all agree that they do not use resources efficiently and effectively and that that's kind of a problem. So what governments do is they give their citizens what the government says they want or what the government says they need without the freedom of choice. The citizens can't choose what they want or choose what they need. No, they can choose maybe a representative if you have a representative government and you can choose one representative that's going to make a thousand decisions having to do with your funds and you might agree with half of the potential decisions they might make, that's, that's as much of a say as you have. And you only have a, you know, maybe one in a million influence on who is actually getting elected into that position. And so you have very little say. So freedom of choice is very small when it comes to this. And, and so instead of real demand actually being met and people being provided with goods and services that they actually desire, 
Instead, you have this kind of fake demand that the government says exists, but doesn't really exist. Because if it did exist, then people would actually allocate resources to it. If I actually wanted a certain type of healthcare, then I would spend my money on it because I want it. And it's more valuable to me than whatever else I would have done with my money. However, if I don't want that, then I'm not going to spend my money on that. And so if I am in a country where the government dictates healthcare programs and policies, then I might not have that choice. I will get what the government says I need, period. That's it. I don't have a choice in that. I can't allocate my resources to a different insurance plan because the government says this is the one I need. Now, is that actually efficient? Well, not really, no, because people are not putting their money with whatever meets their demands. Instead, their money is being stolen from them. They're being told what they really want and need, and it is being given to them, and that's it. So there is not much choice here. What about the effectiveness? Is that actually effective? Well, I would argue that no, it is not, because the overall goal that I have is to have an insurance plan that meets the needs of me and my family. That is my goal. Is that goal being satisfied effectively by the insurance plan the government is putting on me? No, it is not. Because if I were to use the same amount of resources, I would spend it on a different insurance plan. And so, no, it's not effective for my goals, and it's not efficient with my resources. So if it's not effective and it's not efficient, then is it practical at all? Well, no, not really. And that's the whole argument of this episode. I did mention corporations giving donations and how that affects government decisions and such. This is what we call crony capitalism. And companies are actually incentivized to do this because let's say Boeing again has a million dollars to invest. It actually might be most profitable for them to invest that through campaign contributions because they might be able to get certain policies passed and they might be able to get certain people hired in at regulatory agencies in a way that would keep out their competition through probably regulations more than likely and would also get them government contracts which are usually pretty lucrative contracts so that's nice and so they might actually profit more and get more value out of giving away this million dollars towards government officials than they would if they actually invested it into their plants and into their people and into R&D and whatever else. So this is a private company, per se, that is using their resources, on one hand, efficiently and effectively because they're getting profit out of it. They are increasing the value of their company, so they are achieving their goals efficiently and effectively, but the only reason they can do this by giving away a million dollars and adding regulations into the marketplace and basically buying contracts, the only reason they can do that is because the government exists in the form that it is in today. So with the existence of government, it is causing corporations to make decisions with their resources that are not actually the best for the economy as a whole. Think about what Boeing could do with an extra million dollars into R&D. Now, realistically, probably not a whole lot, but just for a matter of argument and for an example here, let's say that a company has 
a lot of money. Boeing has a whole bunch of money that is stored away, and there are two options. They're either going to give it to government, get a lot of influence, get contracts, get regulations passed, get their people in charge, that kind of stuff, which they would probably do. But let's say government doesn't exist, and so they have this giant hoard of money that they actually will dump into R&D and upgrading their facilities and that kind of stuff. So let's figure out what's going to be a better situation for society as a whole and the economy as a whole. So either you have government funds, which we have mentioned before, are stolen from people and created out of nothing, that are going to Boeing because Boeing contributed to many different political campaigns. And so that's what it looks like on one side. You're also having regulations that are getting put into the airline industry that are keeping out smaller companies from being able to come in and compete. So you're lowering competition and creating something that is much more akin to an oligarchy or monopoly here. And so that's one option. Let's go with the other option. What if Boeing takes this giant hoard of cash and spends it all on R&D and upgrades? What happens? Well, they're probably going to discover new technologies. They are going to build their planes more efficiently. They are going to be able to pay their employees better and make more profits as a company as well that they would then allocate towards the same types of things because that would be the most efficient and effective use if we don't have government as the one that sucks away their money. And so with this, what does that create? Well, that creates cheaper planes, better planes, uh, might not even be planes. You might have drone-like vehicles that are taking people around because they have figured out a technology and a method of creating these that's much more efficient and it works a lot better and satisfies market demand better. You never know. You never know what they'll find or what they'll discover or what they'll create. But history does show that as companies invest into things like R&D and efficiencies and employees and so on, that does create better products and cheaper products and more efficient products. Look at all the big tech companies that exist today. Look at TVs, for example. TVs used to be much more expensive than they are today. They've actually gotten cheaper. But has the quality gone down? Well, no, the quality's gone way up. If you look at a TV 20 years ago and a TV today, there's a huge difference. So we have gotten much better TVs at a much cheaper price. That's a good thing. That's what we want. And that is an example of what happens when companies do invest into things like R&D to make a better product and to make a profit. And so that's what we want. We want to incentivize that. So anything that is taking money away from this strategy and away from this allocation of resources is going to have a negative overall impact on what society and the economy and the markets would potentially look like. And so with government existing and operating the way it does, it is funneling and sucking money away from companies. And again, it actually is a wise decision from an overall objective viewpoint. It's a wise decision for them to allocate their money to government because it does make them more profits and it does lower their competition. So that works. That's what they do. But when they do that, that's taking investments and taking buying power out of the markets where it should go and where it normally would be allocated and putting them into the government, which we are determining is inefficient and ineffective. So is that a good use of resources? No, but that is the structure and system that we have. 
under modern governments. Another incentive model I wanted to talk about is what I'm calling the rent versus own incentive model. I have talked about this in a previous episode many episodes ago when we were talking about different forms of modern governments, but I want to touch on it again here because it fits in very well. So the argument goes like this. If you are renting something, then you are not really incentivized to take extremely good care of it for the long run. Rather, you are incentivized to take good enough care of it for the time that you are in charge of it so that you are not responsible for anything beyond what you absolutely have to be responsible for. That is what you're incentivized to do when you rent something. When you own something, what you're incentivized to do is take care of it the absolute best that you possibly can for the longest term possible, or at least as long as you expect to own it or live. And that is what you're incentivized to do. So when we apply this to government and politicians, we see that they don't actually own their positions, in a sense. They are only temporary placeholders. They're, in a sense, renting their positions for the time period of their term, of their elected cycle, and that's it. As soon as the next set of elections comes through, they very well might be out of office, or they might stay in. There are a few positions in different governments around the world today that are appointed for life, but these are few and far between compared to those that are on specific uh, shorter election terms. And so that's the norm, is that you're elected for a certain term, a shorter period, a few years, and then you have to either be reelected or you're just out, period, depending on the structure. And so even if you want to continue to get reelected, you're still not actually incentivized to do what's absolutely best for the country that you are working for. What you're incentivized to do is to get as many votes as possible in the next election cycle. And that's about it. So if you do a really good job, then maybe you do get more votes. So there are times when those overlap. But more likely than not, you want to appeal to your voter base and make sure you get 51% or whatever you need to win that next election. And you're probably going to cater to certain groups of people and exclude other groups of people so that you can get your votes. You want to make sure you're very strong with a certain voter base and you can get reelected. That is what you're incentivized to do. You're not actually incentivized to do what's best for everyone or society as a whole or any of these other nebulous concepts. I would argue that you don't necessarily have to have a position appointed for life in order to get a, quote, own model for this incentive structure. I would actually say it's probably not a good idea. I would say more like how you get hired at a position for a company. So what you do is you get hired for the skills that you bring to the table. Whoever hired you, that company felt like you would be a good fit for that position. You would do a good job and they are bringing you on. They will train you. They will guide you. They will help you. And they expect a certain level of performance out of you. Now, if you are not meeting those expectations or you are not bringing profits to the table or gaining efficiency in the company or doing your job at all, then you're going to get fired. You're not going to stay there. It's not a life-appointed job. But you do own that job, and you are, in a sense, in control of that job, at least to a very large degree. It is up to you whether you do a good job and you continue to keep your job, or whether you don't do your job or totally butcher it and therefore, hopefully, lose your job. And so you are incentivized to do your job well 
in order to retain your job for a longer period of time, in order to own your job, to own your income, however you want to play that parallel. No metaphor is ever perfect all the way down to the tiniest details, but What I'm saying here is that there is an obvious difference between someone that is appointed to do a certain job for a short period of time and someone who is hired to do a job and will retain that job or lose that job according to their performance. So what this system really incentivizes is manipulators and what most people would think of as politicians and unuseful employees. This incentivizes people to basically get elected and get reelected and not do anything so horrible to get kicked out of office. It takes a lot to get kicked out of office, but it is possible, and you want to make sure you don't do that. But what you do want to do is you want to make sure you get more votes, and that is it. And you're only concerned about getting more votes for as long as you can continue to be reelected. So if it's a position that you can only get two terms at, and that's it, then really all you care about is getting that second term election. And beyond that, you don't care. So if you implement a policy that basically ruins your entire country 10 years from now, but you just have to get reelected in four years, then it really doesn't matter to you. You're not incentivized to care about that. Now, I will give the caveat that I've given regarding teachers and police and military and many other government employees that the people aren't necessarily always corrupt. It's not that every single politician only wants what's best for themselves and wants more votes and they don't care about the general public. There are plenty that do care about the general public. What I'm talking about here is incentives. And regardless how much they care about the general public, they are not incentivized to do what's best for the general public. They might actually lose votes. They will likely lose votes if they do what's best for society without regard to their own elections. And that's just the reality. A lot of times things need to happen that make people upset. People might not like taking the hard medicine that's required to fix an economy or fix a society or deal with some societal issue. It might not be pretty up front. Therefore, they would lose votes and might actually lose the next election. They don't want to do that. That's the only thing they're incentivized to do is to win the next election. So why would they implement a policy that would possibly make them lose it if they are not being rewarded for doing the right thing in the long run? Well, most people won't. Now, again, there are people that would. There are people that would do the right thing no matter what the consequences are. There are people that really want what's best for society as a whole and are willing to make personal sacrifices to make that happen. Those people do exist, but the system that is set up that is a modern government is not set up to incentivize these people to exist or to get these positions or to be politicians or to make those hard choices. The, the system is set up in a model that incentivizes the opposite, and my argument today is the practical argument, and that is that this is inefficient and it is ineffective in many cases. There's something else that happens when you funnel money into this inefficient and ineffective model that we are calling government, and that is that it actually hurts profitable and efficient companies. So the more profitable a company is, and more than likely that corresponds with how efficient and effective that company is, then the more they're going to be hurt by having some of their resources allocated somewhere besides their own profitable and efficient company. So 
with an example here, let's say that Microsoft is a very profitable and efficient company. They do really well. I'm not necessarily saying that they are. I'm just giving this as an example of a company that everybody knows. So let's assume and give them the benefit of the doubt and say Microsoft is the ideal company. They do everything perfectly. They're very profitable and very efficient. So what happens? Well, they're guaranteed to have a certain percentage of their income taken away and given to the government to pay for the bureaucracy. Now, some of that tax money will go towards other programs, welfare programs, so let's say society writ large, but a lot of that money will actually go to pay for all these divisions, all these different departments, all these different programs, and actually paying staff. It's paying the bureaucracy. So all these people that work for the government are employed. They get a paycheck. Where does that paycheck come from? Well, it comes from profitable businesses and citizens of the country. That's where it comes from. And so what I am arguing is that the best use for those resources are to stay with the profitable and efficient company so they reinvest that well. Then they get more profitable and more efficient, and they have more funds to reinvest, and they have proven that they are going to do well, and they are going to invest those resources strategically and wisely, and that is why they have more and more resources. However, in the current system, the more they make, the more they pay in taxes, the more they give back to the government that then waste their money. And so... I would argue that that's not very practical, at least in my humble opinion here. Another aspect here is that there is no competition for the government as a whole. Basically, the government controls all the courts, they control all the police, they control many other departments and aspects, generally all the public education and everything else. Now, there is some competition with education, that's probably the most competitive market, even though... I don't know what the stats are, but the majority of children still go to public schools in most first world countries today. There are private police forces, private detectives, there are private protection agencies, I should probably say it's probably more accurate. So there is some competition to police, but in general, police do all the policing in a given country. And it's the same with everything else. With military, there's technically uh, contractors that are military contractors that produce soldiers that can go fight in a war that that does exist and that is possible so there is some competition to the military of a given government but not a whole lot in general the government controls all of these things they have a monopoly on pretty much everything that involves controlling and managing society and their country period they control it all now again they do give portions out to other companies or other industries, and they do allow for a very small amount of highly regulated competition. Now, that is the key, is that they control the regulation. They control who can come into this. They can control how they operate. Uh, Schools is a very good example. Even if you have, uh, let's say in America, you have the public school system, then you also have what are called charter schools. And so with these charter schools, it's basically a school that's run independent of the local county, the local department of education, they run their own school, and they are in charge of basically supporting themselves. Now, they are technically still a public school, and when it comes to funding and meeting state standards, they are regarded as a public school. So, 
for an example, if in the state of Washington, the Washington state gives every public school, they allocate them $5,000 per kid that goes there. And that's what they think is the correct amount to give to each school so that they can pay their teachers, order curriculum, do all the things they need to do. Let's say that's what they give is $5,000 per kid. So with a charter school, every kid that goes to that charter school brings in that same state allocated amount. So every kid that goes to a charter school will bring in $5,000 for that charter school to operate. So that's basically how it's set up. But my point here is that even though this charter school is independent of the local school system, runs on its own, is responsible for making enough money to pay all their things, they're not guaranteed any certain amount from the state. They're paid according to the kids that they have. And if parents don't want to send their kids there, then they're not going to get that money and they're not going to survive. They're going to go out of business. And they can. Whereas a public school in the normal public school system cannot just go out of business. That's not the way it works. Just like any other government department. I would be surprised if there were even a double-digit percentage of government departments that are actually in the black, that actually make a positive amount of money and don't lose money every year. But that's beside the point. Back to charter schools. So the point is that the government controls what these charter schools have to do. They control what standards they have to meet. They control what test scores they have to make. They control how they get their money. They control how they can pick what kids go there. They basically control how that school operates. Now, the school can have a lot of freedom in how they teach and what they teach and what they specialize in and some of their other structures. So they have a lot more freedom than a typical county public school. But they are still very highly controlled and highly regulated. And that's my point, is that generally the competition is there to a very small degree and there are companies that compete against government departments, but they are very highly regulated, very highly controlled. The government basically just takes this small amount of a market and allows them to operate, but they just really control who it is and how they do it. And that's how it is. It's the same with private schools. It's even the same with homeschooling to an extent. You have to take state tests. Even if you're educating your own kid, your kid never steps into an official state school, they still have to take official state tests and make certain grades. And you have to show that you're actually teaching your kids or else the government will forcefully make sure your kids get into a public school. And so it's not open and free markets. It's not a open source of competition. It's a highly controlled, highly regulated source of competition. So going back to incentive models, the point here is that a government is not incentivized to actually do what is most efficient and most effective. They are not incentivized to meet the demands in a market because it really doesn't matter. They don't have any competition. If they do a horrible job, nothing's going to happen. They still have a monopoly on the entire industry. Heck, they have a monopoly on the law code. They have a, a monopoly on the police force. They have a monopoly on the military. They have a monopoly on everything. It's all wrapped in together and they control it all. So if there is absolutely no competition in a market, or at least only the competition that is willingly allowed and controlled by the monopoly, and it is an official monopoly, then where's the incentive to actually meet the demands of the market efficiently and effectively? it really doesn't exist. It's a lot like the profit and loss incentive model I talked about earlier. It just is a totally screwed up model. It doesn't really make any sense. 
if you don't have any competition, then there's no check. Now, they say, especially in America, it's always quoted that America has a system of checks and balances where different departments are checks and a balance against other departments. And the Senate is a check to Congress, which is a check to the president or the House of Lords and the House of Commons that they check and balance each other. This is said to exist. And in a way, it does. These departments do play against each other. They all want to have as much power as possible. They want to have as much control as possible. They want to have the biggest budgets possible. And they do fight amongst themselves to get that. So in a sense, there is competition. But it's competition within the government. That's like if the company Apple has a maybe an R&D department, and then they have a customer service department. Both of those departments want more staff, more than likely. They probably want more money. They probably want to invest more in maybe their computers or their phone systems or whatever it is they want. Both of these departments want resources. Apple only has a certain amount of streams of resources coming in, and they allocate that the way they see fit. So customer service and R&D are going to basically be competing against each other in a sense for these resources, these funds that Apple will allocate to its different departments. So that is competition. But are you saying that Apple is really keeping itself in check? And if Apple was the only tech company in the world, that that would be what holds them in check and keeps them in a place where they are doing what's best for the customer? No, not at all. You have to have an outside competitor. It's the same with government. If you don't have an outside competitor, there is no real system of checks and balances. Now, you can say that there is, and there is to some degree in certain areas, but what I'm saying is, at a whole, with the structure of this system, it doesn't exist to a large degree and nowhere near to the degree that it would in an open and free market. So like I said about departments, they're incentivized to grow. Every department is incentivized to get bigger, to make more money. And it's not necessarily make more money, I misspoke there, to get more money, to have more money allocated to them. They're actually not incentivized to make money, because if they made money and made a profit, then their budget would probably go down the next year. So I'm sure everybody has heard examples of government departments and government programs that are reaching the end of the fiscal year and have to use up their whole budget. And so they buy a bunch of stuff that's really cool, but they don't need at all whatsoever. But they do that so that they can use up their entire budget so that as the fiscal year renews, they can say, hey, we ran out of money last year. We need more money. And maybe they won't get more money. Maybe they'll just get the same amount of money. But they're cool with that. At least they get the same amount. Whereas if they came in and said, oh, we had a million dollars left over in our budget. We did really good. Well, what's going to happen? They're probably going to have a million dollars less in their budget the next year. They don't really want that. No one wants that. In addition to this, Every department wants to grow in size when it comes to how many employees work there. They always want more staff. And with more staff, you can do more stuff. With more staff and a higher budget, you can have more power. And you also want more power just in general. So the FBI wants to make sure that they have authority over as many types of cases as possible. So when they are trying to solve a case or when they're trying to do something, they can basically overstep any of the other sources of whatever you want to call it, policing, I guess. So they want to be able to have authority over local departments. They want to have authority over the ATF, over every other 
agency that might be involved with whatever it is they're investigating. And so they're incentivized to have as much power as possible. So if they're incentivized to have as big of a budget as possible, as much staff as possible, and as much power as possible, none of this really corresponds with actually doing their jobs well or efficiently. They're actually incentivized not to be efficient because if they are efficient, like I said, then they probably don't get their budget renewed or get a smaller budget. Whereas if they're very inefficient, they waste all their money and they run out months ahead of time, they might actually get a budget increase the next year. And this also is only true if they are not accomplishing their job. So let's say they did use up all their budget or ran out of money, but they actually did everything they were trying to do that year and got it all done three months early. If they do that, then it's going to be viewed as though this department actually is probably overstaffed. They were able to get done everything they needed to do with the budget they were given, and they got done early. So therefore, we probably don't need to allocate as many staff to that department next year because they can get their job done without as many people, and then maybe they'll actually last the entire year instead of wrapping up early. And this is possible. However, if you're incentivized to stretch out your accomplishing the goals that are set before you, then that's not really a good thing. That's not efficient at all. In addition to this, if you actually don't complete your goals, it's not like your department's going to get shut down. More than likely, what's going to happen is you're actually going to get more staff or more money, possibly. You're going to get more resources because if you did not get your goals met, then it is seen as you don't have the resources to do what you need to do. And of course, you're going to be telling that to whoever it is in charge of your budget. You're going to say, hey, we need more resources. We couldn't even get done what we needed to do last year. We couldn't do it. We didn't have enough to do it. So give us more and they'll probably get more. So again, you're incentivized to use up all your money as quickly as possible to not accomplish the goals of your department and to overstep every other competitor, even within your own government. Now, what about that is efficient and effective? I am arguing that not much about that is at all. So I mentioned that a government incentive model is not one that incentivizes meeting the desires in a market, meeting the demand as a whole, because they don't really have the competition. Well, another aspect of this is that a government is not even designed to satisfy all their desires. They're actually designed to not satisfy the desires of the entire market. They are designed, a government, a modern government, is designed to satisfy the desires of the majority of the people who vote within that society. And that is it. So even if you say that your country has a 100% voter turnout, and there are countries that are close to this, there are some that are in this upper range, so it does exist. And let's say that whatever country you're in, I'm using America as most of my examples, let's say that there is a 100% voter turnout. Even if that is the case, and the entire citizenry actually participates, the desires that are going to be met are the desires of the 51%, period. So whoever votes they get a vote for a certain policy or for a certain representative. Not everybody is going to get what they want. Only the majority is going to get what they want. That's what democracy is. And so with this, you have maybe 51% of the population wants to have marijuana legalized in your country. However, 49% does not want marijuana legalized. 
what's going to happen? Well, marijuana will be legalized. So are you meeting the demand in your entire society? No, you're only meeting the demand for 51% of your society, for barely half of your society. And that's it. Is this a good thing? Is this efficient? Is this effective? Well, not really. A real, true, efficient, and effective model meets everybody's desires. So if you use potato chips as an example, then if the government was in charge of producing potato chips and putting them on the store shelves and determining what flavors and what types get produced, then there would basically be a vote. And maybe they'd take the top 10. So let's say there's a vote amongst 100% of your population. Everybody votes on their favorite potato chips, what they want the government to produce. Maybe they even cast multiple votes and you rank them somehow. And, you know, it's this very complicated system that is supposed to take into account all the desires of every person. And so you do this. Well, whatever the top 10 types of potato chips were that got voted on are the ones that the government will produce. And they might produce those more efficiently than if a company is producing 50 different flavors and types. So to an extent, maybe we could argue that it's more efficient. This is the argument for communism, that if the government controls everything, they just determine what types, maybe only two types of potato chips will ever be made. We are going to have nacho cheese Doritos, and we are going to have barbecue potato chips, and that is it. Well, if that's the case, then you can get very efficient with this. You can set up your factories, set up your ingredient supply chain to only accommodate these two, and you can make that very efficient. So there is an argument for efficiency here, at least. But when we talk about effectiveness of satisfying the desires of the citizens of a country, you completely fail because you have many people within your country that want different flavors. It's not that there's only 10 flavors of potato chips that your entire country wants to eat. No, they want to have the option of as many flavors as possible. Everybody has their favorite. Some people like pistachio chips or some people like really hot spicy chips. Some people like sweet chips. Some people like just plain old potato chips. People like different kinds of chips. They don't want just 10 options at the grocery store. They want to have lots of different options. So when you apply this analogy to government, we see that the government does not meet the demands of the market. They don't meet the demands of the people they are representing. It just can't happen. It's not designed to happen. It is designed to meet the demands of the majority, and that's it, at the expense of the demands of the minority, period. And so if you compare this to an actual open market with competition, then in an open market, pretty much any demand that's there that can possibly be met profitably is likely to be met. That is the way it is. So there are some demands, you know, some people might actually want sardine flavored potato chips, and there might be a small demand for that. Maybe five people in your country want those types of chips. Well, it's not going to be profitable for a company to make those. Now, a company still might make them just as a limited time offer for something that is a marketing scheme. And it could happen. It's happened before, things like this that seem very nasty, but companies do it and it's some sort of promotion. But my point is that there might still be some demand that is not met in the market. So let's say these people that want sardine flavored potato chips are probably not going to get theirs. But in a free and open market, you are going to have hundreds of different types of potato chips. Whereas in a market that's ran by a monopoly, in this case, the government, you are going to have a very limited number of potato chips, and it's only the ones that the majority of the population like, and that's it. And so that is not very effective if you are trying to actually represent your whole country. Just like if the country is electing a representative, 
well, if the only person that gets elected is the one that the majority voted for, then what about the other 49%? They're not actually being represented in their own government. So you say you have a representative government, but these people don't have a representative for them in the government. So that's not actually true. So again, is this efficient? Well, you can argue that in some ways it can be efficient, but for the purposes of today's argument, the practical argument, I would say it's not practical and it's not effective. And so it's not very good. That's not what we're looking for here. And the alternative does appear at least to be much better. Now, when you wrap up all these different concepts that I've covered so far and you mash them all together, what you can see, hopefully, obviously, if I have explained it well enough, then you will see that this system of modern governments cannot provide the greatest wealth creation or the greatest prosperity or the greatest freedom for a given country or set of people. In many ways, it's not even designed to attempt to do this. And so I would argue that that's not very practical. That's not a very efficient and effective way to govern a society. If you're not able to make your society as prosperous as it could be and offer your citizens as much freedom as possible, then why would you organize your governance system that way? That seems to be the opposite of what most people think the goals of having a government are to ensure freedom and promote prosperity. That's generally what people think of when they think of why society needs government. That end, they think people will just lose their minds and kill each other in the streets, like some post-apocalyptic film. And I would argue that's probably not true. But we'll get into that in the following episodes. So overall, I'm just saying that at least according to this assessment, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So I want to cover a few contradictions that hopefully make it a little more clear even here. So if you look at some of the goals of a government, they can sound very noble. And if you have listened to the episode I did on the New World Order, that was at the end of the corruption and conspiracy series that I did before the series on agorism, which was the one before this. So it was a little while ago. But in that episode, I did cover some things that that were topics and concepts that sounded really good, like let's protect the environment or end poverty or have equality for all. These things sound really good, but the way that they were being applied and the way that they could be applied were not good at all for most of us in society. And when you really get down to what was being done and the programs being implemented, it's probably not something that you or I would get behind at all. And so in a similar vein, there are many contradictions here when we look at what a government is designed and expected to do. So one of those goals is to promote justice. That is something that a government is designed to do, is to be the enforcer of justice and provide justice. Well, what do you want to do? You want to stop crime. Well, how do they stop crime? Well, they do it through crime at least uh, by my definition here, we have talked about how taxation is theft. Uh, we have also talked about how victimless crimes exist, where there's prosecution without damages. There are There's no harm that has been done. There are no damages that exist. So therefore, if you look at it objectively and by definition, no crime has been committed unless you define a crime as what the government says it's a crime, period. And there's no objective view of what crime is. Well, as long as we don't take that 
I would argue, very narrow-minded view, and we actually look at it more objectively, then there is no crime being committed if there is no victim. And so with this, what's happening is with a victimless crime, then the person being prosecuted is being prosecuted preemptively before a crime is being committed. So let's look at the drug laws. So one of the main reasons why heroin, for example, is illegal in the United States is because most people believe that heroin addicts are more likely to commit a crime. And that's true. That's statistically true, objectively true. And so the solution is that you make heroin illegal. And so number one, they think that there will be less heroin on the streets. And let's just pretend like that's actually true. Now, number two, what you do is you then arrest anybody that is in possession of heroin from then on. And that means that you are going to lock away somebody that more than likely would have committed a crime in the future, but hasn't done so yet. You go ahead and lock them up now, and therefore the crime in the future won't be committed. So you end up with the plot for the movie Minority Report. If you've ever seen that, there are some people that can basically see the future, and so there's a police force set up to arrest people before they actually commit crime, and therefore their society basically has no crime. And that's essentially what we're trying to do here with victimless crimes, where there is an increased likelihood of a crime being committed, so someone will be arrested ahead of time, and that doesn't make a lot of sense since we don't have precognizance. We can't see the future. So in Minority Report, at least there were people that could see the future and knew what was going to happen. In today's world, we have a government bureaucracy that determines who is most likely to commit a crime and how to deal with that. And that bureaucracy is the one that locks people away preemptively so that they don't commit a crime in the future. My argument here, at least, is that is in itself criminal activity. That's a crime. Just like stealing people's money, taxation is a crime. A lot of these things are a crime. Well, how do they promote justice in a society? Well, they're going to stop crime by implementing crime themselves. So if they're doing the crime, then it's okay. And they can do crime and stop other people from doing crime. And then society's better, I guess. So the next contradiction here is that the government wants to promote freedom. All governments want to promote freedom. And so how do they do that? Well, the enemy of freedom is oppression. So what we have to do is we have to stop oppression And how we're going to do that is through oppressing the people. So we'll stop oppression through oppression. Now, what does that look like? Well, in order to promote freedom and stop people from being oppressed, we have to institute lots of regulations, lots of laws. We have to put up a lot of restrictions. We have to institute a lot of surveillance of the society in order to make sure that oppression doesn't happen and doesn't exist. We're promoting freedom by taking away people's freedoms. Yeah, so again, it's the same thing. It's a contradiction. What about peace? We want to promote peace within the society. And so we're going to stop force through the use of force. So as long as the government is the one that is forcefully taking your money and forcefully implementing laws, whether they are moral or not, or criminal or not, depending on how you define that, the government is the one that's going to bomb people in another country and start wars with other people and go after other people in a military sense. And when they do this, they're promoting peace because they are stopping the use of force by everybody else through themselves, the monopoly on force, using force. So you promote peace by 
using force to stop force. That it just doesn't make sense. It's really crazy. So what about morality? That's another thing, is that a government is to keep a society from doing immoral behavior. And as I would define morality here, let's just keep it really simple. No raping, no murdering, no stealing, these types of things. These are bad. And I I think I can say fairly objectively that for 90-something percent of the world, they would think that these things are bad. So I will use the term bad, even though it's not technically the best term here. But that's what I'm saying. So for morality, what the government does is they stop immorality through forced morality. And in a lot of ways, if you are forcing someone to act in a way that you believe is moral, while they believe the opposite is moral, then that's probably immoral to force that on them as long as no harm or damages are being committed. And so you stop immorality through immorality. Again, another contradiction here. What about some examples? How about prostitution or personal safety or drugs is the one I've used many times. Well, let's look at personal safety. That's a good one because that's something that most people could get behind probably easier than they can get behind prostitution or drugs. Well, let's talk about seatbelt laws. So in many countries, it is illegal to drive or ride in a car without wearing a seatbelt. Well, what is the actual crime here? Uh, I honestly don't know. The goal is just to promote safety and keep more people from dying in car crashes. That's what they want. So that's probably a good goal to have. I think most of us can get behind that. However, the issue is that the government thinks that it's immoral to put yourself at risk in that way. Well, what if someone else believes differently? Now, I don't know the different reasons. Some people believe that they can get trapped in a car, and it has historically happened before. People have died in car wrecks because their seatbelt malfunctioned or they were locked in and couldn't get out and they died. So that has happened. So it could be an argument that someone won't wear a seatbelt, doesn't want to wear a seatbelt because they believe it is unsafe. There are many other reasons. The point here is that the government thinks that it is immoral to put yourself at risk in certain ways, in this case, by not wearing a seatbelt. And in order to keep you from acting immorally by putting yourself at risk in this way, they will force you to wear your seatbelt. If you don't wear your seatbelt, you will get a ticket. If you disagree and you don't pay that ticket, you will get a warrant for your arrest, or you'll actually be asked to go to court. If you don't go to court, then there'll be a warrant. If you don't obey the warrant, they will come to your house to forcefully take you. They will pull out their guns if they need to. They will arrest you, put you in handcuffs. If you resist that and you think you're being assaulted and you try to defend yourself, you will probably be shot. And so all this goes back to wearing your seatbelt for your own safety because that's the moral thing to do. And they are enforcing that by acting, and I would argue, ways that are very immoral. So yeah, there's that. The other reality here is that when you force somebody to act in a way that you believe is moral, they're not actually truly being a moral person. So you're not going to create a moral society by forcing a certain form of morality on your whole society. That's not the way it works. You're not just going to make everybody good by making sure that people don't kill each other. That's not the way it works. You're never going to totally get rid of all murderers by making murder illegal. Again, that's just not the way it works. So you can't make your society a moral society 
by acting immorally to force it upon people. That's just not how it works. There are many other ways that you could increase morality in a society, but using force and immoral actions to do so, again, is a contradiction that doesn't make a lot of sense. What about another contradiction here? So most modern governments want to make sure that there is individual representation for all of its citizens. Now, what what do they want to stop? They want to make sure that the rule of some over others is not going to happen in their society, that some group is going to lord over another group. We don't want that. And so in order to do that, we are going to use the rule of some over others in order to make sure that no one is ruled over by others. It's a direct contradiction. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what we have when it comes to democracy. So let's promote equality and justice and freedom with a system that takes away equality and justice and freedom for the minority because the majority wants something different? That doesn't make sense. You are forcing the beliefs and values of the majority of the people in a country on the minority. So you are, by definition, ruling over some by others. But that's the whole point of government is to make sure that you don't have the rule of some over others. Yet it's a direct contradiction. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That's not, I mentioned this earlier, that's not actual individual representation because those in the minority are not represented, at least to some extent. So let's talk about a final contradiction here, and this would be that a government is in existence in order to promote competition and fair markets. We don't want monopolies. So in order to stop monopolies, we are going to institute the greatest monopoly of them all, and that one monopoly will make sure that no other monopolies will exist. Well, of course they won't exist because there's already a monopoly. That doesn't make any sense. You can't stop monopoly as a whole by instituting a giant monopoly. That's just not the way it works. But we have this. We have a monopoly over force, over the monetary system of a country, over a country's military, over their police, over their courts, over their schools, over regulation and law, and on and on and on. It's a monopoly over all the most important parts of an economy and a society by the government. And one of the main reasons it exists is to make sure that there is no monopoly that springs up in that country to take over a certain industry. Well, this is taking over many different industries. It's not just that the government has a monopoly on military. They have a monopoly on dozens of different industries and sectors and jobs and roles. So this is the greatest monopoly to ever be invented with all of the downsides of what you have with a monopoly. A monopoly, what people are always afraid of if you say, let's get rid of government. Well, they're always afraid that some company is going to start to dominate. And so that company will take over an entire market. So let's say Apple takes over all of tech. Well, then once they control everything tech-related in a society, then Apple will jack up their prices because people don't have any other options, no one else to go to. Apple will no longer assign resources to R&D and improve their products because they don't have to. There's no competition. And Apple will just overall act in a way that's inefficient and ineffective. That's what people are worried about would happen if there wasn't a government. 
And these are all the things that exist in a government, but not just in tech, in every single industry in a country. So you're afraid of what? That doesn't really make sense. That's a direct contradiction. At least if we had a monopoly in tech and a monopoly in the use of force and a monopoly in the court system and a monopoly on schools, these would at least be different monopolies that can at least to some degree play off each other, compete with each other. They don't have all control over all of society. That's probably a good thing. That's at least some level of competition. We don't even have that. With a modern government, they have a monopoly over virtually everything, everything that matters. And then the things that they decide they don't need a monopoly over, they hand out as they see fit and make sure they can control and regulate that. So that basically wraps up my argument here with this section here. It's basically just that there's a contradiction of ends and means. And it's direct contradictions in all of the biggest ways, all of the main points that people want a government to control, the reasons why they think a government should exist. Well, pretty much the way they're in existence today is just a structural contradiction. And at a structural, systematic point of view, government as a whole, the way it's structured, is just totally inefficient and ineffective and impractical. So, yeah, I, I think, at least in my thought process here, it seems like government is probably not a very good idea, at least the way that they are set up in today's world. So the final argument that people bring up would be that, well, it's better than the alternative, or we don't have an alternative. And so that's what we'll address in the following episodes. I think that I have done a thorough enough job. I have probably beaten some of these points to death, and I apologize if it is too much. You are welcome and encouraged to send me an email and let me know if there are certain points that I spent too much time on or rambled on about a little bit too much. Feel free to let me know. I would appreciate that, actually. I like feedback. But overall, I think that we have covered the morality of government pretty well and pretty thoroughly and shown that government, just at a structural level, is immoral. I think we have then shown that government at a structural level is inefficient and ineffective, impractical in a sense. And so if it's immoral and impractical, then what is it? Well, I don't have anything positive, so I'm sorry. All I have is this negative. The only positive thing is that maybe it's better than any alternative, and that's it. That's what we're left with at the end of these arguments is that what are you going to replace it with? And so in the next few episodes, I will talk about what you could replace it with. So in the very next episode, I want to talk about what a voluntary government would look like. And in my theory, at least, a voluntary government would be moral and it would be practical. It would be efficient and effective. It would be what we actually want out of a government. And I would argue that it is possible. So there are many people that say that a minimal state is something that would be best for society, and it's similar to that argument if you mesh that with voluntarism. So I'll present at least my theory on that, on what a government would look like and how a government could be moral and effective and efficient, and I'll present that in the next episode. Then the following episode will be the standard reply by... ANCAPs, anarchists, most libertarians, those types of people, and that would be anarcho-capitalism, that that is the answer. And if you are going to get rid of government and have a stateless society, 
then probably either anarcho-communism or anarcho-capitalism would be the way to go. Now, I covered a lot of the themes and ideas and concepts behind anarcho-communism when I talked about agorism. A lot of the examples I used there were more along that model, a more collective model, but without the state. And so I definitely want to highlight the opposite here, and that would be anarcho-capitalism. And it's the one that I personally more lean towards. And so I want to present what that looks like and how a stateless society could operate very well, very efficiently, very effectively, and even morally. And so that's what will be presented in the typically the themes episode. And that'll be the theme of this whole thing is that basically government shouldn't exist. Therefore, let's present anarcho-capitalism. Then in the following episodes, typically the case study episode, I will cover the objections to anarcho-capitalism. So basically a case study on anarcho-capitalism and go a little more in-depth into the objections to that theory. And there are plenty of objections and they are very valid. And so they do need to be addressed. So I will take a whole episode to address all those. And that's what's coming up next. So please tune in next time. I hope you have enjoyed this presentation here. Please do give me feedback, send me emails, let me know what you think, what you like, what you don't like, whatever. If you want to support by giving money to the podcast to help with hosting fees and equipment and that kind of stuff, please feel free to do so. You can go to the Patreon page, and there's a link to that in the show notes, patreon.com slash ourfoundations. There is also the option of supporting the show by word of mouth or by leaving a rating or a review or recommending it to somebody online on reddit or wherever you participate in social media please get the word out that would be very appreciated that's another way you can support the show so whether it be through feedback or through giving money or through leaving a review or a rating or recommending it to somebody there are many different ways that you can support this show if you believe that the topics and concepts that i bring in this show are ones that are important and that people should know about and should be educated in then please do support in whatever way fits you best i would greatly appreciate it and i want to thank those of you that have there have been many reviews that have been left or at least many ratings there's been a few reviews that have been left and each one of those are very appreciated the ratings are also appreciated. We've had more of those. And there is one person who is a monthly contributor on Patreon. So thank you very much for my patron. That is greatly appreciated as well. So I think that's about it. If you want to look it up, there is a Twitter account as well, which again is in the show notes. And I think that's it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and this show in general. Thank you very much for listening. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Bye.